study of Philippians. We're nearly finished with this letter of Paul's. And um, wasn't it great last weekend as we celebrated Easter together? And uh, you had a great time. I wasn't here on Good Friday, but uh, a great time with Dave. I knew that Dave had been in the house because the redemption hymnal was on the pulpit. (laughs) And uh, I hear you had a great Good Friday celebration and uh, reflection on the cross. And then last Sunday as we celebrated the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then last Sunday night we had some great testimonies, stories of resurrection, stories of, of God turning lives around. Really powerful stories. Um, those are not on video stream, but they are on podcast. So have a listen. Um, it's well worth your while just to listen to those testimonies and those stories uh, from last Sunday night. So we're, we're going to pick up again this morning in Philippians. We've got another couple of weeks into May um, as we finish this series. So let, let, me, um, let me read to you our next passage. I'm going to read to you from Philippians chapter Four verses one to five. Um, I've no idea what that said, but I don't think I want to know. Philippians four verses uh, one to five. I'm going to read it first in the NIV the New International Version, and then I'll read you a a paraphrase from the Message Version. So therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord, yes. And I ask you, loyal York fellow, Help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. So um, just the first five verses today, and I'll read to you the, the message Version. The message version is uh, a translation by Eugene Peterson. It's a paraphrase, so it is fairly true to the Greek, but it's not as literally translated. Some of the paraphrased versions of the Bible, like the New Living Translation or the message version, but sometimes it's good to read them to give you a different angle. So, my dear, dear friends, I love you so much. I do want the very best for you. You make me feel such joy. Fill me with such pride. Don't waver. Stay on track, steady in God. I urge Euodia and Syntyche to iron out their differences and make up. God doesn't want his children holding grudges. And oh yes, Sisygus, since you're right there to help them work things out, do your best with them. These women worked for the message hand in hand with Clement and me and with the other veterans, worked as hard as any of us. Remember, their names are also in the book of life. Celebrate God all day, every day. I mean, revel in him. Make it as clear as you can to all you meet that you're on their side, working with them and not against them. 
help them see that the master is about to arrive. He could show up any minute. There's a nice paraphrased version there, and it just draws out some of the truths of this passage. And the emphasis of chapter 4 is never give up the Christian walk. Stand firm, persevere, live well, a long obedience in the same direction. And uh, I, I want to look at three things that I think Paul addresses in these first five verses. Is, is First of all, he's talking very specifically about learning how to get on with other believers. Secondly, he's talking about rejoicing in the Lord, learning to rejoice in the Lord. And thirdly, he's talking about learning to be gentle. Let your gentleness be evident to all. So, as always in Paul's letters... Often he starts with soaring theology and truths about who God is and what God has done. And then he gets to the sharp end of living out the truths and the doctrines that we've studied and that we've heard about. And that's what Paul is doing here in very specific pastoral church settings where he's writing this letter to the church in Philippi. And he's addressing specific situations. And uh, these are his life hacks. These are his... These are his practical commands, his like how-tos uh, to this church, to these believers. And three of his quite practical instructions that we're going to look at together this morning as we carry on with our, with our letter that he is writing from prison, remember. So first of all is learn how to get on with other believers. Chapters, uh, verses 2 and 3 of chapter 4, he says, I plead with these two ladies, Euodia and Syntyche, I plead with them to agree with each other in the Lord. Um, the New Living Translation says, I appeal to Euodia and Syntyche, please, because you belong to the Lord, settle your disagreement. And in the message version, which we've just read, he says, I urge Euodia and Syntyche to iron out their differences and make up. God doesn't want his children holding grudges. Now, the version of the, of the NIV and the ESV uh, uh, portrays the, the Greek as saying to be of one mind, uh, to be of the same mind in the Lord. I urge Euodia and Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. A major theme of Paul's letter is unity or harmony in the church. As we've read through it, the four chapters... He's, he's now naming two individuals, but, but it, he's obviously addressing a church situation of disharmony and disunity, and he's writing to the church, and he's, he's, throughout the letter, he's used actually exactly this phrase, to be of one mind, uh, to be in agreement with one another. So in chapter 1, verses 27 and 28, he says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. It's the same Greek, and it means to be of one mind. That I know that you as a church will have one mind, and you will strive together for the gospel. One spirit, one mind, striving side by side. It's the same phrase that he uses in chapter 4, verses Three, when he talks about Euodian Syntyche working side by side with him uh, in the furtherance of the gospel. And then in chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, he lifts up Jesus as 
our example and as our motivation. And he says, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if you have any comfort from his love, if you have any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded. Same phrase in the Greek. Having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. So he's already addressed this in a wider, in a wider setting to the whole church. And then in chapter 3, verses 15, it's the same phrase. All of us then who are mature should take a view of such things, have the same mind in the Greek. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. He's appealing to the whole church for unity and for harmony. And he's appealing especially around the gospel. He says, we are here as a church to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that we were proclaiming last Easter weekend, the gospel that we proclaim. Paul says we have to coalesce around this gospel. This is why we are here. We've got to be of one mind as we contend as one man for the faith of this gospel. So throughout his letter, he's addressing this conflict that's in the church and his, his North Star, his plumb line, is always the gospel. And this conflict, we find out, has spread from two women leaders in the church who are not getting on, Euodia and Syntyche. They have fallen out big time with each other. These are not peripheral women. These are leaders in the church. They're not fringe people. They are um, co-workers with Paul. They've contended, Paul says, at my side for the sake of the gospel. They have been involved in gospel work. They have worked hard in evangelism. And now it's no secret to Paul or the church that they're fighting with each other. Did you know that Christians have fights and disagreements? The fact that there is conflict in the church should not surprise us. The question is, how do we deal with it? And Paul here does something quite unusual. He names names. He names Euodia and Syntyche to a, in a letter that's read out to the, to the whole church. I, I urge Euodia and Syntyche to, to get on, to make up to sort out their argument. What does he do? First, how does Paul address this quite specifically? First of all, he, he addresses the issue head on. He doesn't skirt it. Both in his wider letter, where he's addressing from chapter one to chapter four, he's addressing unity, harmony, conflict, uh, brothers and sisters getting on together, contending for the faith of the gospel. He, he addresses it in a wider scope, and then he, he zooms in, and he addresses it head on, and he names the elephant in the room and he says, this big fight that's going on in the church between Euodia and Syntyche, I want them to sort it out and I want you to help them sort it out. So Paul addresses the fact that there is conflict, that there is difficulty, that there is relational breakdown between these two women. And secondly, what we see Paul do is he entreats them rather than commands them to make up. He pleads with them and he exhorts with them. He says... He says, first of all, I love you so much, and uh, you are my joy, and you're my crown. But then he says, uh, um, I, I urge them, I plead with them, I, 
I entreat them. He's not using his authority as, a, as an apostle of the church, but he's asking them to make up. And we read in Proverbs 25, verse 15, through patience, a ruler can be persuaded and a gentle tongue can break a bone. And sometimes there is that, that, there is that, that asking, that pleading, that he's not pulling rank. He's not trying to manipulate the situation. He's not applying his apostolic authorities, pleading with them as fellow workers in the Lord. And he's saying there's a lot at stake here. There's, the gospel is at stake. The church is at stake. You need to sort this out. You need to learn to agree in the Lord. And he couches his address to them in the phraseology of beloved and my joy and my crown. And, and as we read the message version there, it said, uh, my dear, dear friends, I love you so much and I want the very best for you. So he's writing from a, a heart and a place of, of love and sincerity. The third thing that Paul does that is sometimes necessary in these situations is he introduces a mediator between these two warring factions. And he addresses, depending on the version you read, whether it's Sisygus, an actual named person, or whether it's the Greek for a loyal yoke fellow, close co-worker of Paul's, um, you know, there's, there's divided opinion, but he is addressing an individual and he's saying, I, I want you to help them. I want you to mediate between them. I want you to come in, uh, my loyal York fellow or Sisygus, and I want you to help these two women who have fallen out with each other and to mediate between them. And Paul is preaching the word of God. He's giving instruction. He's sharing doctrine. But also sometimes it requires personal intervention and personal involvement and other people coming in to help in, uh, in a conflict situation. And that's what he does. Sometimes there are warring factions. Sometimes there's a fallout between a husband and a wife that is very serious. Or sometimes between uh, two friends or two individuals, both of whom are convinced that they're right. And Paul preaches the word of God to the Philippians, he shares the gospel with them, but he also appeals to this mediator to step in and to help them to be a peacemaker uh, between these women. The fourth thing that Paul does as he writes to the, to the church and addresses this specific situation is he, he asks them to agree in the Lord. The phrase is in the Lord. I ask, I urge Euodia, I plead with Euodia, and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. This phrase, in the Lord, if you read through Philippians, is all over the place. It, it comes up many, many times. But Paul is using it here, and the verb translated agree with appears ten times in Philippians. What is Paul asking them to do? He's not asking them to agree on everything. He's not asking them to have the same mind on everything, to see things exactly the same way on everything. He's asking them to be unified in their shared devotion to Christ and the gospel. I ask and I urge them to agree in the Lord. He's not asking them to be totally uniform in their opinions or in their view of what's happened, but around what really counts, he's asking them to agree. 
and to work hard and to work humbly on those central issues. And some of the peripheral issues will sort themselves out. If they focus on the key issues of the fact that they are sisters in Christ, that they are there for the purpose of sharing the gospel, the one who has saved them, of sharing this bread with others who have not yet found Christ. And he's saying, I'm pleading with you guys to agree in the Lord. Be Jesus-centered. That's one of our values as a church, to be Jesus-centered, to lift up Jesus first and foremost above any personality or any individual, to lift up the name of Jesus as we have done this morning as we've worshipped and praised and said there is no other name that has an equal (laughs) or a rival of the name of Jesus. Be Jesus-centered and and John reminds us in his letters, does he not, that he, he challenges us and it challenges us to the core. He said, how can you say that you love God whom you don't see if you can't love your brother and sister who you do see? You can't do that. You can't say that. You can't say you love God if you hate your brother and sister. It's not possible. And it's a very great challenge to us, each one of us, But the fact is, the more we love Jesus, the more some of this other stuff will melt away. That's why I think Paul is challenging these two warring leaders is to love each other in the Lord, (laughs) to agree with each other in the Lord. Not always to see things the same way or to agree on every issue. And fifthly, something that he does that I think is quite important is he commends them as well as challenges them. He sees their humanity. Lewis Smedes points out this fact in his book on forgiveness, in his various books on forgiveness. But have you ever noticed that if you're mad at someone or you're fighting with someone, often we reduce our opponents to the lowest common denominator and their perceived failings. So have you ever said something like, he's nothing but a cheat? Or she is nothing but a liar? Or he is nothing but a hypocrite, or she is just a gossip. We reduce our perceived enemy to their perceived fault, and we strip away their humanity. And what Lewis Smeads says in his books on forgiveness, he says, our no more thans or our nothing buts knock the humanity out of our enemy. He is no longer a fragile human being, a mixture of good and evil. He is only, she is totally the sinner that did us wrong. And as we start on the miracle of forgiveness, we begin to see our enemy through a clearer lens, less smudged by hate. We begin to see a real person, a botched self, And forgiving our enemies does not turn them into close friends or even trustworthy partners. We don't diminish the wrongness of what she did to us. We take him or her back into our private world as a person who shares our failed and faulty humanity. They are bruised like us. They are guilty like us. They are still thoroughly blamable for what they did to us yet they are human like us. I was thinking 
this morning as I walked to church of the parable of the unforgiving servant and how we all do that, all of us. Jesus told this crazy story of a man who owed a great debt and was going to be thrown into prison. And yet the king forgave him his debt. And yet he walked out of the king's palace and he found somebody that owed him a small amount and he wrung his neck and he said, pay me what you owe me, you little scoundrel. And this crazy story that Jesus told, we all read it and we laugh at it. But I think it's so true of every one of us. Is that God has forgiven us so much. If my rap sheet was put up on that screen today, I'd be out that door faster than you can say, Diddy Dave. (laughs) And to be honest, so would you. If the Lord counted our sins against us, who could stand? We've all been forgiven so much in the sight of God. And yet we still go and wring the neck of our opponents, saying, I'm not going to forgive you. I'm not going to let you off for what you've done to me. And so Paul writes to Euodia and Syntyche, who've fallen out spectacularly and are experiencing conflict. But he doesn't reduce them to this conflict. He says, help these women who have contended with me at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers. Their names are in the book of life. They are daughters of the king. They're going to heaven. They are great evangelists. They are wonderful leaders. He doesn't reduce them to the nothing buts, the onlys. They are nothing but. They are only this or only that. He says these are fellow contenders in the gospel. And they are going to heaven. And they're going to be in heaven with you and with each other. So now would be a good time to sort this out. These are true believers. They are true leaders. They are true evangelists. They are children of God. Their name is in the book of life. They will be in heaven together. And they've fallen out with each other. And this isn't theory, is it? This is all church communities have to deal with this. I was on the phone this week to Ollie Ryder, pastor of St. Matt's Church. We were sharing some stories with one another. And he says, Jeff, if anybody comes to our church from PCC and they start bad-mouthing you, I tell them, before they even get going, I say, Jeff's a friend of mine. (laughs) And I say, I'll do the same with you, Ollie. (laughs) But wherever you go, whichever church you join, you'll find conflict soon enough. And you'll find problems soon enough. So if you've come here from another church looking for the perfect church and the perfect leadership, I've got one word for you. (laughs) Adios. (laughs) Wherever we go, any community has to deal with conflict. All communities have to deal with conflict. All families have to deal with conflict. Every relationship, every marriage, every friendship has to deal with conflict. It's not easy. It's painful and it's difficult and it takes time. But it's the way of the gospel. And it's part of walking like a Christian. Standing firm, persevering, learning how to get on with other believers. And Paul knows all about this because he had such a spectacular falling out with Barnabas, his mate in the gospel, that they couldn't work together anymore. And they had to go their separate ways. 
because they fell out so sharply, it says. And I think Paul learned from that, and they made up, and you know, they worked together in the future. But he, know, he knows and he knew the pain of separation, the pain of conflict. He knows as he's writing to the Corinthians. He knows as he's writing to the Philippians, which is why he says from a place of love and pastoral care, I plead with you, Euodia and Syntyche, you fellow leaders, I plead with you to agree with one another and be of the same mind in the Lord because I know what it is to fall out with someone and you don't want to go there. So that's the first thing that he does and that's my longest point. If you're dividing my sermon into three, fear not. (laughs) The first point was learn how to get on with other believers and and Paul is addressing that very specifically. The second thing is, is, is learning to rejoice in the Lord. And we remind ourselves of Paul's circumstances. He's in chains. He's in prison. He's in dire circumstances. He's facing a court case. And he's facing potential death. And he says rejoice in the Lord always. I, again, I say rejoice. There's a term in the Lord again. But, uh, rejoice and, and joy. If unity is a major theme of Philippians, joy is a major theme of Philippians. Um, in chapter 1, verse 4 and 5, in all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Chapter 2, 17 and 18, but even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with all of you, so you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Chapter 3, verse 1, further my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it's a safeguard for you. The Apostle Paul uses the Greek words for joy and rejoicing 16 times in 104 verses. And Paul has already lived this out. In front of the Philippians, in Acts chapter 16, if you remember, he and Silas in Philippi were arrested and thrown in prison because of their gospel work. And In jail in Philippi, rather than having a pity party, they decided to have a praise party. And the Philippines saw this. They've seen the way Paul operates. And now, once again, Paul is writing to them from prison. He's not writing to them from a chalet in the south of France. And his command to them, is it what, hang in there by the skin of your teeth? No, it's not. It's rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say rejoice. Again, this isn't very easy, is it? I was thinking about this this week, and I was thinking about certain circumstances that I was thinking about personally, and uh, some of the stuff I'm aware of that's going on in, in individual lives in the church. I was thinking of how hard it is sometimes to take commands like this and live them out. <laughs> it's easy to preach it. It's hard to live it. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say Rejoice. The ground for joy in this command is Jesus. Our joy is never ultimately in our circumstances. So whatever circumstances you face this morning might be fairly dire, very challenging, quite harrowing, traumatic. But he he says rejoice in the Lord. (laughs) Agree in the Lord. (laughs) I'm going to say it again, rejoice. 
Our delight is in the, in the Lord, is in Jesus. We have a joy above our circumstances, which is why Nehemiah says the joy of the Lord is your strength. But Paul doesn't just express the ground for joy, which is Jesus and a relationship with Jesus. But he also answers when and for, and for how long we should rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. And this is a command and not simply good advice. You can obey this command because the grounds for rejoicing never change. And the grounds for rejoicing are, are Jesus. Your circumstances may change. Your relationships, your health, your age, your material possessions. Most things in life are always changing. Nothing stays the same. Have you noticed that? It's quite annoying at times. I heard this week that Positano's is up for sale. My Italian restaurant. It's been there since I arrived in Plymouth. And now they're selling it. Nothing stays the same. Everything moves on. And so if we rejoice or put our joy in those things, they will slip away from us at some point. Our dearest and nearest things. Except Jesus, because he will always be there. And he will never leave you or forsake you. Which is why... D.A. Carson writes, unless the Lord comes back first, each of us will face death, our own, and if we live long enough, the death of loved ones and friends, and we will weep. But even in our tears, we may rejoice. We will rejoice. We must rejoice, for we rejoice in the Lord. And he does not change. And that is why we shall rejoice in the Lord always. And he goes on to say, God well knows that a believer who conscientiously obeys this command cannot be a backbiter or a gossip. The cure for a crushed and a bitter spirit is to see Christ Jesus the Lord and then to rejoice in him. Lurking and nourished sins are always a sign that our vision of Jesus is dim and that our joy in him has evaporated with the morning dew. By contrast, the believer who practices rejoicing in the Lord, will increasingly discover balm in the midst of heartache, rest in the midst of exhausting tension, love in the midst of loneliness, and the presence of a God in control of excruciating circumstances. Such a believer never gives up the Christian walk. Which is why Paul challenges them and and reminds them these Once he loves so much, a joy and crown, my beloved, rejoice in the Lord. Let your joy always be in in the Lord, always. And I'm going to say it again, rejoice. And the third thing he says is, he says to learn to be gentle. In verse 5, he says, let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. This is the exact opposite of contention and self-seeking it is actually a self-effacing attitude let your gentleness be evident to all the term gentleness which is epiakes in the in the in the greek was often used 
of an attitude of kindness where the normal expected response was retaliation. So epiakis, where, where, where the natural response would be to retaliate, to fight back, to hit back, to insult back. Uh, the gentleness here is, is when retaliation is expected and to be expected, it is an act of kindness instead. Let your gentleness be evident to all. And notice that our gentleness is to be evident to all. No exceptions. We should have a reputation for gentleness rather than vengeful retaliation. People who have a hard time being gentle and kind to others are often people who have a hard time being gentle to themselves. I've told you the story before of when I went to see Jenny the nun and as I sat in a monastery somewhere on a retreat, had an hour with this nun who as a spiritual director, and she said, Jeff, you must learn to be gentle with yourself. And we must all learn to be gentle with ourselves because we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. And when we receive the love of God, it changes us, and we can be gentle with others. Be someone who is known for their gentleness because, Paul says, the Lord is near. You know, Peter writes in one of his letters that the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. A gentle and a quiet spirit is of great worth in God's sight. God loves a gentle spirit. Paul tells Titus to remind the people, don't slander anyone. Be peaceable and considerate and always be gentle to everyone. And he writes to the Ephesian believers and he says, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient and bear with one another in love. And Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. You remember Paul saying, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Learn from me, Jesus said, I am gentle and humble in heart. Gentleness is a fruit of the spirit, isn't it? So the more full of the Spirit of God we are, the more gentleness will become evident in our lives and in interactions with one another. So this is a very practical passage, isn't it, this morning? I hope it's made you uncomfortable. (laughs) As it has me. Because this is what the Word of God is for. It challenges. It divides between spirit and soul. Marrow and bone comes in with a scalpel and shows us sometimes where our heart is at and Paul writes and he doesn't command he commends he urges he pleads he shows his love for these believers but he says well you have this spectacular falling out learn to get on with other believers learn to rejoice in the Lord learn to be gentle with one another And all of this, Paul says, is for the sake of Christ. It's for the sake of the gospel. The stakes could not be higher. So shall we pray? And I hope you haven't done that old classic Christian, I hope somebody's listening, I hope such a body's listening to this sermon. Just you, just you before the Lord. Just deal with you. Bible says, doesn't it? Look, take the plank out of your own eye. 
before you take the speck out of your brother's. So we've all got enough of our own stuff that we can work on from this passage before we try and apply it to other people. So I'm going to pray for you and pray for me and pray for us that God would help us to walk like a Christian. Especially the peace on forgiveness is so important. So I pray for you. I watched a movie last night and there's a a scene in it about forgiveness and the Lord challenged this individual to start to speak it out. I forgive. I forgive. And some of us probably need to do that. I forgive. forgive. Remember, forgiveness is not letting somebody off the hook. It's not saying they weren't to blame. It's letting yourself off the hook, really. And it's releasing yourself. Forgiveness doesn't mean reconciliation. It doesn't mean trust. But it does mean forgiveness and, and letting go of that debt. So Lord, we pray in the reality of a church community. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to get on around and because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to agree to be of one mind in the Lord. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to always rejoice, to rejoice in the Lord always. And I pray, Lord, that increasingly, as a church and as individuals, our gentleness would be evident to all. We would have that gentle, gentle and peaceable spirit that is of such great worth in your sight. Father, we pray that you would uh, continue, Lord, to bless this church and this people. I pray, Lord, that you would command your blessing, which you do when there is unity. I pray that you command your blessing, God, over this church. And let it run down like oil in Aaron's beard. Lord, we pray that you would touch us individually where we feel this morning the, the peak, the, the pain of a broken relationship or an individual that we've fallen out with. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would work in each and every one of our lives to grow and to uh, mature and to be of one mind. I pray, Lord, that you would fill us with joy unspeakable this morning. And that you would, as we reflected early in the service, lift off any spirit of heaviness and fill us with unspeakable joy, the joy of the Lord, which is our strength. Father, we pray for your work and your grace amongst us. In Jesus' name, amen.